You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. So welcome, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you're joining us from today. My name is Oge Onobogu and I'm the director of the West Africa program at the US Institute of Peace. Thank you for joining us for this conversation on Guinea, which is part of a USIP series exploring the surge in coups around the world. In September, 2021, the military in Guinea-Conakry took over following President Alpha Conde's unpopular constitutional change to secure a third term in office. Today, we will explore the role of the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, and other regional bodies such as the African Union and the international community. We will also reflect on the several possible pathways that could be followed to return Guinea to constitutional order. To help us explore all these questions today and more, we are joined today by an excellent group of experts. Ibrahima, Nyang is the Regional Advocacy Manager with the Open Society Institute, West Africa, based in Dakar, Senegal. Dr. Joseph Siegel is the Director of Research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University in Washington, DC. Dr. Chris Fumunio is the Senior Associate and Regional Director for Central and West Africa at the National Democratic Institute, also in Washington, DC. And Alexis Ariette is a specialist in African affairs at the US Congressional Research Services. For our general audience, I encourage you all today to please join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag, why all the coups? So let's get into the conversation. And Ibrahima, I will start with you first. It's been almost three months since the coup in Guinea and the general outlook in the country still seems very uncertain. Can you bring us up to speed on where things are in the country today? What does the current situation look like? Ibrahima? Thanks, thanks, Oge. <clears throat> it's, it's been now three months since the, the transition started in, in Guinea with the military coup. And the transitional government is in place with a civilian prime minister and women and men of integrity holding key ministerial positions in the government. But we still do not have a very clear timetable with, with indicators and dates for the review of the voters list, the organization of the elections, and the constitution building process. And despite the ECOWAS sanctions, we are really observing positive developments indicating that the new Guinean authorities are making efforts to rebuild the relationship with the regional organization and also the international community. And maybe ECOWAS will consider this during the December 12th summit in reviewing its engagement strategy in, in Guinea. So the, re the recent developments I am referring to are the transfer of President Conde to his wife's residence. So technically, his situation has improved from being detained at an unknown place to being under house arrest the establishment of a court to fight financial and economic crimes. In French, it's the Cour, la Cour de Répression 
des infractions économiques et financières, an audit of the civil servants registry, which led to 6,300 people being sent on retirement and various high ranking military officers being sent on retirement as well. The new Guinean authorities have also authorized former heads of states in exile, Musa Dadis Kamara and uh, Sekuba Konate to travel back to Guinea. And this is seen by many as a sign to promote national reconciliation. And the consultation and application process for the establishment of the National Transitional Council, which is supposed to be the legislative body of the transition, is almost complete. And the transitional body will be in place before the end of this month. So we really hope that the National Transition Council will be established by the end of the month and that the timetable for the completion of the transition will be made public by the end of January 2022. The transitional government and institutions will really need technical support to conduct an inclusive and participatory constitution building process, investigate and litigate on economic crimes while respecting the rights of all parties, build a new clean voter register based on a new population census, and establish a coherent and inclusive national reconciliation process. So I will just share these initial remarks for now, and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ibrahima. It seems a lot has happened in the last um, three months, almost three months. So I'm gonna turn over now to uh, Joseph Siegel. And Joseph, military coups in Africa basically have a, a terrible track record for the well-being of citizens. Even though in the case of Guinea, we saw a lot of citizens, mostly young people, take to the streets in support of the military after the recent coup, Guineans have experienced military rule before and they know the consequences can be dangerous. So clearly there is a need to support, support an urgent uh, civilian transition. But the question is how best to do this, you know, especially when the military in the current military junta in Guinea seems to enjoy a lot of popular support. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, okay. <clears throat> I think this idea of uh, popular support is an important one to talk about. Um, because uh, in the case of Guinea, and then often other uh, coups we're seeing in Africa, um, there is uh, often a, uh, you know, some very deep-seated grievances uh, towards the uh, previous administration. And in the case of Guinea, um, there was uh, uh, a lot of opposition to Alpha Conde's uh, bid to retain power for a third term. There had been massive protest against that, and many felt that he had uh, uh, taken unconstitutional actions to stay in power and was growing increasingly authoritarian. And so when there was the coup in September, uh, there was some uh, relief. And, uh, you know, and, and some sense of uh, hope that this would uh, end uh, you know, uh, a, a prolonged tenure for Conde in office. At the same time, I think we have to be careful about calling the, the, the coup a popular, um, uh, act, you know, a, a popular act. Many uh, of the opposition leaders, uh, you know, uh, while, while 
criticizing Conde denounced the means of using the military to try to, to change uh, the order of, 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 of the country. Um, as you noted, many uh, citizens in Guinea are, are well familiar with the abuses of the military government. Indeed, you know, Guinea is one of the poorest countries in Africa, one of the most corrupt countries in Africa because of its many decades of military and authoritarian rule. So I think there's a, a lot of uh, trepidation about an ongoing military uh, government in, in, in Guinea. I think you know, more fundamentally is, is the question of, you know, how should change come about? You know, there, in any country, there are problems. Uh, and in Guinea, you know, there, there are serious problems. Um, the question is, how do you change? And the problem of uh, legitimating and tolerating a military intervention is that it effectively um, creates an extra legal process for political change. And once you start down that road, it's a very slippery slope. You know, what's to say what's legal and what's not legal? Um, what is the process of transition? Who sets the, the, the norms for what a new trans, a transitional order um, uh, will be in place? And on what basis are they doing it? What legitimacy do they claim? And uh, I think that's really the problem because if we tolerate this, if we recognize the authority of a coup leader, then what's to stop uh, another uh, lieutenant colonel from stepping in and saying, well, they're not happy with the way things are going and therefore they have the right to um, change the government. Surely there will be a few people come on the streets and support that too. That's not a way that we want to um, normalize the process of change in Guinea or in any uh, African country. Thank you so much, uh, Joe. Definitely really wonderful insights there. So I'm, I'm gonna turn over to uh, Dr. Chris Munio, still following on that thread and the overview that Ibrahima provided as well. So we see that ECOWAS has suspended Guinea, imposed individual sanctions on the military junta, and they've also called for elections within six months. However, there's growing concern about the credibility of African regional bodies such as ECOWAS and the African Union, because it seems that they are tough on coups, but a little relaxed on the issues that caused the coups in the first place. So Chris, uh, this, this question here is for you. How feasible is it for Guinea to conduct elections in six months? And what should ECOWAS and the African Union be doing now during this period of fragile transition to support Guinean citizens to build the type of inclusive democracy that the country deserves. Over to you, Chris. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Oge, for those questions. Um, and uh, let me let me start with the last point um, because I think when we talk about Guinea, uh, there is the track record about the people of Guinea and their aspirations for freedom, for liberties. Uh, for democracy that uh, sometimes get overlooked. Uh, let's remember, let's keep in mind that Guinea was the first colony in 1958 to vote against, to go against General de Gaulle of France to say they wanted their independence. And at the time in 1958, the Guinean said, we would rather be a poor country, but be independent and have our freedom 
than be a colony under France. And that was a very brave decision. And as I look at the politics and the history of Guinea, uh, even in the last uh, five or six decades, I see a constant determination on the part of the Guinean people to have their freedom and their rights respected and to aspire to be governed democratically. That's why the successive military regimes that have uh, occurred or come to power in Guinea have not been able to sustain themselves. Uh, whether it was General Lassana Conte, we had people demonstrating and asking for democracy, uh, or Dadis Kamara, or even General um, Thuluba, who facilitated the transition and the return to civilian rule in uh, 2010. Now, with regards to the timelines that is being debated now between the Junta and ECOWAS, of course, ECOWAS expects or stated publicly in, in the declaration made by the heads of states that they wanted elections in six months. Uh, the Junta has said on its own part that it wants the transitional legislative body that Ibrahim referred to the CNT to be the one to determine the duration of the transition. I mean, this is a very sticky point because nobody wants the military to become so comfortable uh, that they find ways to prolong their stay. I mean, we've seen countries as big as Nigeria that had a one-year transition when General Ibrahim, uh, when General Abubakar Abdul Salami uh, managed the transition from 1998 to 1999 in Nigeria. He stated he wanted a one-year transition and it worked. So we've seen other countries that have gone to 18 months but have faltered along the way. So I think the important thing is going to be to have a timeline that's workable and that would allow the various pillars, especially with regards to the new constitution and new elections to be conducted in an inclusive manner to kind of lay the foundation for the next phase of Guinea's democratization process. Obviously, this presents a lot of challenges for ECOWAS, for the African Union, uh, because you're right, they have come under a lot of criticism from the Guineans. And I think ECOWAS is being tested in terms of its commitment to its own protocols. Uh, fortunately, we are in the 20th year uh, and ECOWAS this month of December will be celebrating the 20th anniversary of the additional protocols that were adopted in 2001 to strengthen and reinforce democracy and good elections across the sub-region. Uh, and I think that ECOWAS is mindful of the fact that if it falters on Guinea, it's going to open the Pandora's box to what could be a contingent effect because we've seen the military get back into politics in Mali. We now see it in Guinea. Uh, we see it in neighboring Chad. Uh, we see it in Sudan. And there's a concern, not just in West Africa, but across the continent, that if our regional organizations are not firm in the way in which they stand up to the military, but also in the way in which they stand up to autocratic regimes, the country could see a lot of its democratic gains reversed. And that would be a very negative trend that we all opt to stand up against. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Chris. And I will continue on those points that you made and I will call an Alexis now. And, and Alexis, you know, beyond the statements from the international community condemning the coup in Guinea, how has the US in specific responded to the coup? You know, what's the broader state of play of congressional efforts in response to the coup in Guinea and just the shocking rise in coups that we see in general? Um, are there opportunities for the US to engage during this period of fragile transition in, in, Guinea, in Guinea? Thank you, Oge. Um, so starting with Guinea, in response to the recent military coup there, the US government has called for um, a restoration of democracy and respect for the rule of law in the State Department's uh, phrasing, and encouraged a national dialogue to address political conditions that presaged the coup, and also expressed support for ECOWAS mediation efforts. Um, on the assistance side, um, you know, Guinea is a recipient of U.S. foreign assistance, uh, not a top recipient in Africa, but, uh, you know, a sizable recipient. There is a, a USAID mission and other forms of aid. And pursuant to Section 7008 in annual foreign aid appropriations laws, the U.S. government has suspended certain other, certain types of aid to the government of Guinea uh, after the coup this year. There are legislative exceptions for democracy promotion, humanitarian assistance, and certain other types of aid, including uh, there's a precedent for considering life-saving health assistance uh, to be a form of humanitarian aid, for example. Um, and as you've probably seen in, in the news, uh, COVID vaccine deliveries have continued from the United States, for example. The administration has made it very clear that these are not contingent on policy conditions. Um, the U.S. has also provided health system strengthening assistance to Guinea, including in prior years related to Ebola surveillance uh, and response efforts. Um, and there is some precedent for exempting governance support to local versus central government entities, although this has not been publicly detailed. In general, there, the, the administration has not publicly released a detailed account of the impact of these aid restrictions. But generally, these primarily concern military aid, including the nascent counterterrorism assistance uh, that we've seen uh, in Guinea in recent years. You know, during the coup, there was um, a focus on this counterterrorism cooperation because of a video that circulated on social media and eventually got picked up in the international press that showed U.S. military personnel uh, returning to Conakry during the coup from a base nearby where they were conducting training with Guinean partner forces. So that military assistance generally is primarily affected and usually suspended or terminated after an application of this provision in foreign aid law. In addition and separately, the president issued a notice recently of his intent to suspend Guinea's eligibility for unilateral trade benefits under the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act for Guinea starting next year. Um, and here, the president cited a lack of continual progress toward establishing the protection of the rule of law and of political pluralism. Now, this is a reference to a set of democracy and governance benchmarks written into the law that authorizes AGOA as a program. Um, and so in that same uh, communication, the president also uh, notified his intent to uh, suspend AGOA benefits for Mali, for example. Um, similarly, in apparent connection with the coup in Mali, or the coups, plural, in Mali, 
uh, and also citing concerns about international humanitarian law, presumably a reference to uh, alleged violations of human rights by Malian security forces. Um, there are additional tools at the US disposal, including visa restrictions, which were applied in 2009 against members of the junta in power at that time in Guinea. Uh, and of course, other forms of targeted sanctions, but there have been no public announcements at this time that these tools are being used. Uh, presumably they remain on the table, depending on how the situation evolves in Guinea. Uh, in addition, the next year's defense authorization bill as passed in the House would require the executive branch to report on US security assistance to Mali, Guinea, and Chad, reflecting congressional concern with US security cooperation with African countries where military forces have gone on to seize political power. Um, and I would just note in, in addition that the United States government had, had expressed significant and high level concern with political developments in Guinea prior to the coup, um, including at the level of then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in 2019 and 2020, uh, and repeated statements of concern from State Department officials about the conduct of last year's elections, both the constitutional referendum and the presidential election that, that led to President Conde being sworn in for a controversial third term. Um, so the US had publicly and at a very high level stated concerns with that progress, with that process and with uh, political trends more generally, including political detainees in Guinea. Um, to your broader question about US tools responding to this trend um, sort of wave of, of military uh, seizures of power in the region, some of these tools are already at play in other countries. So Mali is also under this uh, same aid restriction as Guinea um, under section 7008 pertaining to countries where the military has seized power through a coup. Um, and uh, there are similar discussions, I think, about additional tools uh, like sanctions and other types of restrictions. Um, it's a broader conversation, and I think it's a it's a moving target. But I look forward to going more into detail, uh, perhaps later in the discussion. Thank you very much, Alexis, and and thank you, you know, Ibrahima, Joe, and Chris for laying this um, this this picture, this overview of of the current situation, and also helping to explore some of the possible pathways to move the conversation forward. I think from all of your presentations, we've established um, that the failure of both ECOWAS and the international community to support or proactively support democratic processes when President Alpha Conde was seeking a third term in large part contributed to what led to the current coup in Guinea. So we're having this conversation on Guinea today against the backdrop of a rise in military coups, um, not only in the region, and amid the Biden administration summit for democracy as well. So I'm gonna go around to each of you, depending on where you sit and from your vantage point, what type of advice would you give for engagement in Africa, especially in the context of Guinea and in the region? So what, what advice would you give as the Biden administration commits to revitalizing global democracy? I'm gonna start with Ibrahima. Yeah, <clears throat> thanks. Um, okay, so just some, you know, some quick, um, you know, advice. <clears throat> the first one is obviously to, you know, uh, help with um, 
national dialogue processes. Because I guess the situation in, in, in Guinea to the one in, in, in Mali. And I think now we are seeing uh, more, um, you know, um, <clears throat> will from the people to, to have internal dialogues, uh, to, you know, be in a position where they can find solutions to their own problems in respect, obviously, you know, of uh, international legal instruments and, and conventions, etc. So promoting national dialogues and really listening to, to these stakeholders in country and trying to understand, you know, where they are coming from and how they really want to, you know, um, get out of these situations. And the second thing is to really support, you know, long-term processes and longer-term reforms. Because, for instance, the problem in Guinea uh, has a very, uh, you know, deep uh, root cause, which is the instability of the constitution. So really helping, you know, build uh, solid constitutions following uh, inclusive participatory processes, but also help build solid institutions, and especially institutions at the, at the, at the local level and increase the support to civil society groups and groups uh, you know, acting as watchdogs of, of democracy. I think those groups need uh, youth groups, women's group, communi community-based groups need really much more you know, technical and financial support. Uh, and the last, uh, you know, the last piece of advice I, I, can, I can give is to support all the efforts around, uh, you know, electoral reforms, uh, reform of the voter register, and also reform of electoral laws. Because many, uh, you know, most of the time here, that's where the, the issue is here in, 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 in Guinea. So yeah, those are some advice from where I'm, you know, from, from where I'm sitting. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ibrahima. I'm going to turn to uh, Joe, if you're there. So Joe, what, what advice would you give from where you're sitting, from your, from your vantage point? Well, I think there's quite a number of things that can be done to try to reverse the trajectory we've seen uh, uh, of democratic decline, and especially with regards to the, uh, the flurry of coups that uh, Africa's experienced the last uh, several years. I would start by saying we need to better incentivize democracy. So from a positive standpoint, um, make uh, legitimacy matter. Um, there should be uh, you know, more uh, opportunities, more uh, uh, options for partnership with African democracies and countries that are doing the right thing to try to um, govern in a way that's participatory and open, transparent. Um, you know, this is both good for Africa in terms of stability and prosperity, but it's good in terms of uh, uh, a basis for partnership with the United States. Um, and so we need to recognize these are long-term partnerships we should be building and try to incentivize and encourage, create opportunities for development assistance, financial assistance, um, debt relief, uh, uh, security assistance uh, for countries that are, are doing uh, the right thing. 
I think the flip side of that is, you know, there need to be cost for governments and leaders who are trying to undermine democratic processes. This applies to um, those who are trying to unconstitutionally extend their terms. And indeed, this is another problem. We've seen you know, 13 uh, uh, leaders in Africa since 2015 extend uh, their terms for a third term. And so we're seeing a, a reversion to these you know, extended presidencies um, in Africa, which is, uh, um, and which plays into a whole host of other problems in terms of insecurity, corruption, um, and, and instability more uh, generally. Uh, um, I would uh, um, then, you know, I think specifically when, when it comes to coups, we need to um, be clear that when a coup happens, uh, there shouldn't be a question, uh, there shouldn't be any recognition for the, the junta that emerges from that. You know, and without international recognition, um, these coup leaders are really isolated. Uh, they need international political recognition. They need financial um, support. They need to be able to engage with international financial networks. If those aren't uh, accessible to them, they really are uh, at a loss in terms of how they can, they can govern. And so um, I think we need to recognize that there's more leverage on the part of the international community than is uh, often appreciated. And, uh, and, and make sure there are costs. I think part of the decline in democratic standards we've seen is that there has been a recognition within um, some African leaders that um, the international community is not upholding the same level of standards. And so they're going to do the minimum amount required um, to be recognized and in the process uh, retain power and with it, you know, all the disparities um, in, in revenue allocation and in opportunity and impunity that, that come with it. Thank you very much, Joe. So we'll turn to Chris. And Chris, you, you know, you've been in the business of democracy strengthening for, for quite some time, so you know that it is long term. So what advice would you give here? Well, um, you know, in all modesty, I probably uh, put on the table a few ideas for consideration, uh, maybe three, um, and ask or encourage them to take a keen look at those. Uh, the first point would be uh, that the administration needs to be proactive. Um, in fact, I was I was delighted when um, when uh, my co-panelist uh, talked about. Secretary Pompeo, uh, when Alexis talked about Secretary Pompeo's being very blunt and, and very um, upfront about the fact that Guinea was on the wrong trajectory. Um, and I was really delighted when he made that announcement. Uh, I believe either early 2020 or so. Um, and I thought to myself, maybe if he had made the announcement in 2019, uh, when we all had a, a sense that uh, President Conde was going the wrong direction, it probably would have had a greater impact. And I know that in a number of these countries, the US government is knowledgeable or has um, a way of knowing in advance where the country is headed. Um, and I think it would be useful to share some of that information 
with the public so that it puts the autocrats or the military in those countries on notice uh, that they're being watched, that the world is watching. So that proactivity is something that I would recommend very strongly, especially in the domain of public diplomacy. Uh, secondly, I would recommend that they put some muscle to their declarations because people have become to some extent, especially in the global South in general, not just in Africa, but in, 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 even in Asia and Latin America and other continents, people have become pretty blasé uh, with declarations that are not followed by actions. And we see that the the, the bad actors, whether it's the military, whether it's autocratic regimes, whether it's illiberal forces operating on the African continent, they're very action oriented. And so they do things that undermine democracy, but the pro-democracy elements on the continent, the pro-democracy forces, civil society, political parties, progressive minded legislators, very often, don't feel that they have the material resources to be able to stand their ground or continue in the actions that they're taking to strengthen and deepen democracy. And so it's important to speak out, my first point, but it's also more important to back up our declarations with other actions. Uh, I recognize that, for example, for the Democracy Summit, this criteria that has been laid out uh, and not all you know, 49 countries of Sub-Saharan Africa or not all 54 will be attending. There's a select group that's been invited and that's some recognition and that's good. Uh, but I think we need to do more to reward the, the good guys, but also penalize and punish the bad guys. Uh, the third thing I would like to put on the table is uh, the matter of consistency and solidarity in terms of how they engage with various countries. Uh, because um, now, thanks to technology, we've become, the world has become really uh, flat, that people in Mali know how their counterparts in Guinea are being treated, uh, that people in the military in Guinea and in Mali look at what happened in Chad. And so if you give Chad a pass uh, because you want to please one ally or you're afraid of ruffling the feathers of uh, another country, uh, that when you get to Guinea and you're taking a tough stance, people are going to look at, you know, the people of Guinea are going to say, but why, why pick on us? You give everyone else a pass. And so there's going to be need for a lot of consistency in terms of how the administration deals with bad actors on the African continent uh, and how it rewards the good actors to provide incentives uh, so that the people who are laying their lives on the line on a daily basis the civic activists, the lawyers, the women leaders um, can have room and space to have their voices heard and for democracy to be strengthened and deepened across the continent. Thank you very much, Chris. And I'm gonna turn it now to Alexis. Um, it's, so I should say upfront uh, that CRS doesn't give policy recommendations, you know, we're just um, analysts. So I, I would make instead just a few observations. Um, one is that it, it has been a challenge, I think for US and other uh, international policy actors to distinguish uh, and emphasize 
um, the quality of democracy and not just kind of the procedural trappings of regular elections. And I, I actually think that the US government seeks to do this and you know, through um, USAID and State Department democracy promotion assistance, there's a range of assistance that aims at some of those quality, you know, quality metrics, uh, including efforts to strengthen civil society, efforts to strengthen, as I mentioned, local government actors, not just um, you know, central government, not just electoral processes, but service delivery. But still, I think diplomatically, uh, it's, it's a challenge. And that's really what we see playing out in West Africa, right? It's not just that right now we have a wave of erosions of formal democracy in the form of military coups um, or you know, rebel uh, challenges to central governments, but we've had a longstanding uh, deterioration in the quality of democracy, so that even um, you know we even procedural democracies like Mali, obviously we had to learn this this very hard lesson multiple times now in the last uh, ten years. You know, first with the military coup in 2012 that followed a real deterioration in Malian perceptions of what they were getting out of their democracy uh, under uh, under President ATT. Um, and then again, uh, last year with the with some popular expressions of support for the coup that overthrew uh, President Keita, um, you know, this this reflected, it seems to me, um, uh, a sense among many Malians that democracy was not delivering uh, and and not just on economic and socio, you know, socioeconomic issues, but also even just on the, the quality of democracy, that nepotism and corruption we're undermining the principle of accountability to citizens that lies at the heart of, of a functioning democracy and undermining true checks and balances. And so we obviously see that in, in Guinea um, with President Condé's uh, inheritance of an already very institutionally weak state. Um, and then he, you know, he often decried that institutional weakness as president while also, also taking full advantage of it, right? But uh, taking full advantage of the lack of a fully empowered parliament uh, of the lack of, of true political decentralization, of the lack of a, of a fully functioning and independent judiciary. Um, so, uh, so again, th those quality issues are, are at the fore. Um, another observation I would have is that US influence at the end of the day is limited um, and peer-to-peer -peer influence among African heads of state is very important. Um, and so it's not, um, it's not uh, an accident, I think, that uh, President Conde's bid for a third term coincided with President Ouattara's bid for a third term under very similar conditions and with a very similar roadmap in Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, and because of Ouattara's standing in the international community, uh, I think uh, President Conde benefited a bit from being able to sort of move forward in tandem with his peer in that case. And what we've seen in Mali and Guinea is that ECOWAS heads of state are much more forward leaning and inclined toward punitive actions in the wake of military coups that overthrow elected presidents um, than they are in opposing unconstitutional third terms or other kind of abuses of power or abuses of office by, by, sitting, president, by sitting civilian presidents. Um, and so that's obviously a challenge that the United States has to acknowledge and be a bit uh, modest maybe about US influence in the absence of that peer-to-peer -peer influence. Um, to Dr. Fumunia's point about US messaging, I would note that the Secretary Pompeo made uh, 
his first statement about support for democratic transitions of power in Guinea in September 2019 after meeting President Conde. So it did, you know, start U.S. messaging at the very high level did start in 2019, and then there was an another another statement by Pompeo in early 2020, uh, um, as was mentioned. Um, uh, during that same visit to Washington by President Conde, he met with um, a number of U.S. Uh, policymakers and uh, civil society and NGO members. Um, I remember attending a small meeting with him, uh, I believe hosted at the Atlantic Council, and he made it, you know, President Conde was fond of saying, I'm the president of Guinea, I'm not the president of Human Rights Watch, <laughs> right, whenever anybody would uh, challenge him. And he said in the meeting that I was in, at least in my recollection, um, you know, I don't care about what uh, U.S. NGOs or even, you know, presumably U.S. policymakers say about my presidential ambitions. What I care about is the people of Guinea and the uh, view of other peer African heads of state. You know, he was coming off of his time as chair of the African Union. Um, and so I think it's it's crucial that uh, that the that that the United States seek to work with and build support for some of these norms around uh, term limits, for example, and other democratic norms in full recognition that African views matter most, foremost, um, that that's the example that um, people like President Conde look to and, and understandably so. Uh, and then work also, you know, again, that, that strengthening of civil society can help get at um, the point that, you know, Guinean public views matter. Obviously, we all are aware of public opinion polls that showed the Guineans were very much opposed to President Conde's third term bid, bid, so it was a bit spurious of the president to make the point that he did. Thank you very much, Alexis. All very wonderful and insightful thoughts that you've provided here. Um, I want to turn it back to the panel again to see if anyone has any closing thoughts or anything that you'd like to put on the table that we may not have already addressed. I think we addressed a lot through this conversation. There are a lot of questions that have come up through the, the discussion. So wondering if there are any final thoughts that anyone would like to share again. Ibrahima? Yes, um, thank you again. Okay. So I just want to come back to something that uh, was, uh, you know, talked about earlier, uh, the ECOWAS additional protocol. And, you know, I think this is a very important instrument which really needs to be uh, updated, or I would even say revised, uh, if you really want to promote democracy and if you really want ECOWAS to continue playing an important role in the region. And I, I think, you know, in the, in the revision process, I know some uh, experts have already been, uh, you know, hired to work uh, on the, you know, on the, uh, on the revision to propose uh, a draft. But I think it's, it's very important to do advocacy, you know, towards the, the, the improvement of the protocol. And especially as, you know, with regards to the, the sanction regimes, in order to, you know, ensure that, uh, there, there will be sanctions for those who will manipulate constitutions in order to run for third terms, as well as those who will uh, come to power, you know, uh, through military coups. It's very important to, 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 to review that instrument. And I'm glad that the process is, is underway. But, you know, as it always is the case, I think there, there needs to be a push. There needs to be, you know, strong advocacy 
for uh, the protocol to be, you know, pr very progressive now and for the sanction regime to, to be, you know, a concrete one that can be implemented. Thank you. Thank you, Ibrahima. Joe, Chris? Yeah, um, I'd like to um, throw out a couple other things. Uh, one, just again, stepping back, I, I would want to reiterate, we need to be careful about how we talk about change. Um, and I see in a lot of the discussion about coups that there's a, a quick you know, assessment of how difficult the conditions are and that there's corruption or there's unhappiness with the government. And, and therefore somehow that uh, rationalizes the coup. And I think it's important to keep those concepts separate. Yes, there can be criticisms. Um, there can be valid grievances uh, and, and, and genuine concerns about corruption. But that doesn't justify taking extra legal means to replace that government. It, do, it doesn't justify a coup. If we're trying to build democratic processes, we need to be talking about what are the ways that you address those grievances through legal constitutional means. You know, how do you empower the domestic reformers? How does the international community get behind those who are advocating for constructive change? You know, any government, any democratic government in the world has its critics. That doesn't justify overthrowing them. That's why we have elections. That's why you are allowed having protests. That's why there's a free press. So you can channel those, uh, those differing points of view through, um, through constitutional means. So I think that's a really important point um, to make that, that we, we have to be careful about conflating grievances with justifications for the coup, because coups, uh, again, take you on extra extra constitutional path, which then uh, really uh, leaves it up to the coup makers to decide how transitions happen and how you get back to a constitutional uh, and, and legal foundation. Uh, and, that's, and, it, and, it's, and so it's a big step backward. And if I could, I would throw in another um, consideration. We haven't really talked about um, it applies less in Guinea than in Sudan and Mali and Tunisia, but that's the role of international or external actors in trying to, excuse me, intervene and, and manipulate uh, these, uh, these outcomes, these democratic transitions, and in fact, uh, encouraging coups. And you know, primarily I'm, I'm referring to some of the Gulf actors and Russia um, and I think, it, again, as we're, as we're doing this review of coups in Africa, we need to recognize when, when, when a coup happens and, and a country is taken off a constitutional path, it makes that country very vulnerable to outside influences who can then um, um, co-opt coup leaders who are seeking international recognition and support. Um, and in the process, um, really compromise sovereignty um, in the interest of trying to gain uh, that, um, you know, that, ex that external political recognition and, and financial support. And so uh, as part of that recognition, I think it's important and incumbent on the inter international democratic community 
to call this out, uh, but also to to work in a more uniform um, and uh, uh, collaborative way to uphold democratic norms um, and and really uh, insist on a high threshold for democratic processes and in that process when 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 these things are undermined when there is a clear violation through a coup to to not recognize the junta to try to work with civilian authorities um, to reinstitute a, a constitutional path and in the process uh, you know give more voice give more leverage to citizens in those countries who are electing the leaders rather than to the external actors who can gain more leverage by working through coup, coup leaders. Thank you Thank very you. much, Joe. Chris? Yes, I, I will um, echo one of the points made by Joe and maybe expand on it by saying, you know, this conversation about military coups and military interventions in political processes um, has also to be put in a broader context of some of the security challenges, some of the vulnerabilities that West Africa is facing right now. For example, the uh, you know the need to counter violent extremism that's really eating at the heart of the Sahel and and that's destabilizing um, the countries in the Sahel, but now also threatening countries along the the Atlantic coastline. Um, we heard the other day about you know extremists or is Islamist elements killing people in Benin, uh, in northern Benin. We've heard about uh, incursions into northern Cote d'Ivoire. So that's a, that's a major security threat that's looking at countries in West Africa. And it would be most unfortunate if the security services in countries in, in that sub-region are spending their time focusing on scheming on how to get involved in politics rather than really carrying out the missions for which they have been institutionalized or for which they have been created um, and that would really put a lot of the economic gains it would really put civilian lives uh, the security of the population at jeopardy and so in some ways this is an appeal to the militaries in those countries to say the purpose of your well-being is to guarantee the safety and security of your uh, compatriots stick to your mission and do it well. And that would be an act of patriotism rather than spend your nights scheming about how to get involved in the political process because that's not what you trained for. The second thing I would say is, you know, thanks Alexi for uh, reminding us of the date of um, uh, Secretary Pompeo's announcement. I was looking for it. I knew that it was early uh, and many of us were very delighted by that. Um, and I should say that, you know, uh, as we discussed Guinea, the U.S. government's uh, messaging on Guinea has been consi consistent uh, because having come out in, 19, in 2019 to make its position clear uh, very directly to the president at the time, the, the U.S. earned the credibility to also condemn the coup and to also work alongside the Guineans to help the country come out of this transition. And, and what happens um, and this is the case for the regional bodies, is that if you lose the opportunity to speak out, you also lose the credibility in the eyes of the citizens when things really go wrong. Thirdly, I know that 
USAID and other um, agencies of the US government have done a, an incredible job in putting resources into what needs to happen in between elections. Because we have to keep our eyes on the fact that the decay of democratic institutions and practices tends to happen in between elections. Because autocrats know, and even military regimes know, that around elections, everybody's around, everybody's putting the spotlight on them. They try as much as possible to play the act or, or to be in their best behavior. But once the lights go off with the elections, then they can go into the very bad practices and everybody's gone, everybody's gone and waiting for the next election. And so what we do in between elections to strengthen political parties, to strengthen legislatures so they can be a co-equal branch of government and exercise oversight over the performance of the executive branch of government so they can better advocate for citizens and help the government deliver services to citizens. Uh, what we can do to help civil society and create the space for them to be able to do their work and advocate on behalf of citizens without having their heads chopped off, that those things that need to happen in between elections should be prioritized because that's really where the decay begins to happen. And then the last thing that I would say for, for ECOWAS is that um, I'm really hoping that going into this 20th anniversary celebration, the heads of states of the sub-region are thinking through the path that has been traveled so far, where they've stumbled and what needs to be done going forward. Because we have to remember that in 2015, ECOWAS came very close to adopting a resolution that would have limited every president in the sub-region to not more than two presidential terms. In fact, 13 of the 15 presidents of the ECOWAS sub-region were favorable to that kind of resolution. Uh, unfortunately, that effort in 2015 was torpedoed by just two presidents. Given what has transpired between 2015 and now, I'm hoping that the presidents have learned their lesson. They've realized that they have a stake in this and don't want to put up, set up themselves to become targets of assassinations or coups, and that they will do the right thing, not just for themselves and their countries, but also for future generations. I think we have to, as friends, as, as partners, work side by side with them, with civil society, political parties in the region to make sure that some of these um, actions that undermine democratic processes can be proactively dealt with and preempted and that efforts to strengthen and deepen democracy that come with all of the gains of accountability and transparency and space for citizens to participate in how they're governed, that those um, uh, positive attributes could be able to prospire in that very you know, commendable and very resource worthy, very rich sub-region uh, sub of the continent. Thank you very much, Chris, for that very compelling message. Uh, so Alexis, before I bring us to a close, do you have some final closing thoughts that you would like to add here as well? I don't have much to add to the excellent points made by my fellow panelists and by you. Um, I would just, as we're having this conversation, my thoughts uh, are turning to friends and loved ones who live in Conakry. Um, you know, Guineans have had to live through just unimaginable hardships and challenges 
over the recent decades, um, you know, starting but not even ending with regional uh, wars at the country's doorstep, the Ebola uh, outbreak um, less than you know ten years ago, uh, continuing uh, deep economic hardships attributable to the COVID pandemic and other factors, um, and some of the people I know in in Guinea are cautiously optimistic about um, what can be achieved now, um, even though they're fully cognizant um, and lived through, um, you know, the, the dangers and abuses of prior periods of military rule in Guinea. So even though as, a, as an analyst, I feel very um, concerned and skeptical uh, about um, the junta's intentions and what they can achieve and what they even hope to achieve, and yet I have to, you know, I have to hope that my, um, that my, that those who I know in Guinea who are cautiously optimistic that they're correct and that I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so that's where I would, I would close today. Thank you so much, Alexis. And thank you everyone for a very rich conversation. I think from this discussion, we've established that there are some possible pathways to move forward in Guinea, some more obvious than others but there are possible pathways to explore to help Guinea during this period of fragile transition to move back to constitutional order. So I really wanna thank all our panelists today, Ibrahima, Joe, Chris, Alexis, thank you for all your wonderful um, input in this discussion. And for those who are joining us online, I encourage you to continue the discussion using the hashtag on Twitter, why all the coups? and look forward to continuing this discussion with everyone. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.